This is the Wavemaker Conversations podcast. I'm Michael Shoulder. I'm calling this episode The Real Moby Dick because Herman Melville drew on this true story for his classic tale. I was tempted to call it Introducing Tommy Nickerson. Tommy Nickerson grew up in the early 1800s on the island of Nantucket, where nearly every boy dreamed of going to sea and hunting whales and maybe becoming rich as a result. Nickerson, at the age of 14, joined the crew of the whale ship Essex, about 3,000 miles off the coast of South America. The whale rams the ship on the side, comes up under the vessel, surfaces, springs to life, and then swims ahead of the ship rams the Essex in the bow, it fractures like an eggshell. Three months later, rescuers finally found the ship's few surviving crew members, among them Tommy Nickerson. But it wasn't until a century and a half later that Nickerson's written account of the sinking of the Essex was discovered in an attic and found its way into the hands of my guest, historian Nathaniel Philbrick. Philbrick's bestseller about the Essex in the heart of the sea is now being made into a movie by the great director Ron Howard. It's releasing in December and in this Wavemaker conversation from the Nantucket Book Festival, Nathaniel Philbrick and I spoke before a live audience at the Nantucket Whaling Museum beside the jaw of an 80-foot sperm whale, which is about the size of the whale that sunk the Essex. There are so many ways to start the Nantucket story. For a newbie, what's the first story you would tell on Nantucket that, that, that is an entryway into this history? Well, you know, for me, Nantucket is, is as a, not just the capital of whaling in the, in the 19th century. For me, what fascinated me when I started work on my first book of, of history, uh, Away Offshore, uh, which is about the island's history. I had lived on Nantucket for about 10 years when I started work on that. And, and for me, this, the stories that re really resonated really didn't have much to do with whaling, but about those first, uh, first years, the, 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 the community that was, was here. And they arrived, began, the English community began arriving in 1659 with this huge native population, over 3,000 people, which was uh, the biggest single concentration in New England. And so you just had this fascinating dynamic going on. And one of my favorite stories is, um, you all know the lily pond? And, um, and right now it's more of a marshland, but uh, back in the day it was an actual pond. And uh, there was a dam and a mill uh, very, uh, very near where, you know, Gull Island, which is there, that was an actual island. And uh, there had been a fort built on it uh, in case of Indian attack. I mean, it was the, there was that kind of potential fear in the community. And it was this beautiful pond uh, very close to what's now downtown Nantucket. And there was another family called the Paddock family, uh, which was just across the street. And a little girl, uh, about 12 years old, named Love Paddock, uh, would at the, during the evening uh, decided to, was playing around the, play, the where the dam was, right next to the mill. And she took out a, a clamshell, and it's Gull Island because apparently there are a lot of gulls around there, and she started to dig just a, a, little, a little rivulet uh, and created a little stream uh, from the pond. And uh, it was 
uh, night was approaching, her mother called her to dinner. Uh, she threw down the, the clamshell and ran up to the house on, on uh, the hill overlooking there, had dinner, went to bed. And then uh, the next morning, she was awakened by her father looking out the window and going, my gosh, who has let the water out of Lily Pond? What had happened was that that rivulet had turned into a gushing torrent and all of that pond had completely uh, gushed out and uh, she did not say a thing her entire life until she was on her deathbed. By this point, she was one of the foremost uh, Quakeresses in the community and, uh, and on her deathbed, she admitted that she had been the one who let the water out of Lily Pond. You know, and for me, that's, I mean, that's what Nantucket's about. It's, it's, you know, it's kids uh, uh, living with that kind of story that, has, that relates to the, the topography, geography that's still there. That's what I love about this place. And, and how did, what year was this? Uh, I'd have to examine one of my copies of my book, because it's just one word. You know, when you write a work of history, as I did Away Offshore in 1993, that was published, and then you write another book, and then you write another book, it's a little hard to be a, you know, a storehouse, so I can't tell you exactly. I but roughly speaking. early 1700. So you started with a story about a child. Let's get into adolescence now. In the Heart of the Sea, you wrote a version for young adults. And it begins a little differently for young adults. Just as captivating for, for children, though, it begins with a 14-year-old boy named Thomas Nickerson. First of all, Thomas Nickerson was going off on this whaling ship for two years, and I thought, geez, that would be a nice experience for my son. <laughs> but, but how did you discover Thomas Nickerson and Give us his story. Yeah, um, Thomas Dickerson really was my way into this story. Um, the, the, the story of the Essex uh, was well known. It was one of the foremost uh, stories of American maritime history in the 19th century. But it was the first mate's account, Owen Chase's account, that had become the, the, the version of record. Uh, and just about any kid growing up in America in the 19th century read a version of the Essex in their, their school reader. Um, it was that much a part of the culture. However, there was another, uh, you know, the, the Essex had 20 people on it, and uh, uh, five Nantucketers survived, and the youngest was Thomas Nickerson. Tommy Nickerson, he was 14 when the Essex left uh, in 1819. Tom, Thomas was with Owen Chase, survived the Essex, went out with, uh, Pollard again on his next voyage. Now that's a leap of faith, if ever there was one. Pollard once again loses a ship, uh, uh, this time on a shoals off the Hawaii. He, he said, you know, back home I will be judged on a lucky man. That's the end of my career. He was right. But, but Nickerson survives this, continues his whaling career, eventually moves into the merchant uh, service, moves to Brooklyn for a while, but eventually retires back to Nantucket and by this time, whaling was ended, and he became the proprietor of a, a, a boarding house just at the end of, end of North Water Street. It's now part of the buildings associated with the Harbor House. And you know, at, this, at that time, they were doing what we're doing today. They weren't fishing for whales, they were fishing for tourists. And uh, Nickerson had some, you know, people knew that he had been a part of the Essex. And so uh, at one point, one of his guests, was a professional writer named Leon Lewis. 
uh, who would publish these best-seller pot-boiler-type books for boys. And uh, he had heard about Nickerson's being a part of the Essex and said, you know, if you would write this up, I will turn it into, you know, a best-seller. And so we do, uh, at the time it was known that Nickerson uh, wrote an account. He had s apparently sent it to Leon Lewis, but nothing of consequence happened. And, and in the obituary of Nickerson that I found in the, in the Inquirer, it said, you know, we knew he wrote an account, but no one knows what happened to it. Well, let's fast forward to 1980. And uh, uh, at that point, Edward Stackpole is the, the head of the Nantucket Historical Association's uh, archive. And I don't, and he was well along in years in 1980, and I don't know how he uh, did not have a heart attack when on his desk arrived a package bearing the long lost account of Thomas Nickerson. And it's now a part of the Nantucket Historicals collection. It's, it's a composition book like you can still buy in a stationary store. You can buy it in the stop and shop. And there he, he has written uh, his, his account of the Essex disaster. And uh, it's an incredible document, needless to say. For, you know, it's, it's a time capsule. Out of the past comes a different account. Now, as an historian, you, you go for the events, the, the accounts that were written as close to the event as possible because memory you know, fades and does tricks on people as we get older, usually. But you also have to look at who, who was, who, who is, whose account it is. Uh, uh, Owen Chase, uh, in the summer of 1820, had just returned from a voyage that did not go very well. An officer who was trying to put his involvement in this disaster in the best possible light. That's what we all do in our own narratives. And so he had his version. Nickerson was the cabin boy. Uh, he, was 50, he had had his birthday, so he was 15, uh, when he was at the helm of the Essex when it was rammed and sunk by a huge 85-foot sperm whale. That's a jaw from an 85-foot sperm whale. Uh, and so he was there. And, um, and it's clear in examining his account, he had obviously read Chase. He had also talked to the other survivors. Uh, they apparently had kind of a dialogue throughout the years. He knew Pollard. He knew all of these guys. And um, he clearly, he came up from a very different perspective from Chase. And, and all of these survivors had lived with Chase's account being the account that everyone knew. And so... And by, by the way, just to summarize Chase's account, the essence of it was was what? What did he convey to them? It's, what was the story we grew up well, with? Those kids grew up with Yeah, him? and it's a wonderful account, and it largely because it was ghostwritten um, by a, a Harvard graduate uh, who was a, a, a Nantucketer, uh, who, who um, you know, had, had something to do with it, and it's, it's wonderfully written, and it, it, it involves the, the cannibalism stuff with quite excellent detail, which is what you would want to do if it's quickie journalism after something like this. But it also provides his point of view. It's his, you know, he's the hero of the tale to a certain extent, which we are all the heroes of our own tales. That's nothing, this, you know, that he's not, you know, it's just the way it works. Nick, and, and so it tells the story from the point of view, and it has a wonderful description of the whale attacking. Nickerson's take on it is, and the whale rams the ship on the side, comes up under the, the vessel, surfaces, springs to life, and then swims ahead of the ship and comes hurtling at it 
at more than six knots, rams the, the, the Essex in the bow, uh, it fractures like an eggshell, egg and even according to one account, drives the ship backwards. Extracts his head from the, the, uh, the timbers of what's left of the bow and is gone. Nickerson, in his account, adds a detail that, that Chase chose not to, to, to mention, which is, after the first hit, the whale is stunned, knocked out, floating beside, uh, beside the ship on the starboard side, feet from the side of the ship, its tail toward, uh, towards the stern, just uh, very near the rudder. Chase takes up an 18-foot killing spear uh, with which the, the, the whaleman would kill whales and is tempted to kill this whale. It's a huge whale. If he can kill it, they're, they're in good shape. Remember, the ship is, has been hit but is not sinking yet. But he notices that the tail is right next to the rudder. You know, if he provokes this, this creature into taking out their rudder, you know, they're going to be they're more than 3,000 miles from the coast of South America. They're going to be in very big trouble. So he, he decides not to do it. The whale springs to life and everything else follows. Chase doesn't mention this. Nickerson does. And you can understand why. And so Nickerson, this 14-year-old kid... Hey, by the way, it's like a war story because you, you decide, do you, do you shoot, do you pull the trigger, or do you not? He decided not to. He didn't mention the consequences of exactly. not. Exactly. You know, and it's, hindsight is wonderful. Uh, you know, we, we, with hindsight, we, you know, uh, historians can look like geniuses. If you're live, living in the middle of it, um, it's an entirely different situation. And Chase, you know, showed commendable uh, judgment in one sense, but he, you know, he of course didn't know what was going to happen. What's amazing to me, though, is that a 14-year-old boy would have the presence of mind to re and have the situational awareness to recognize what was going on in that, in that level of detail. Yeah, well, you know, you have to, this is a 14-year-old kid, but he's grown up on Nantucket, where the only thing you want to do if you're a kid, a boy, is become a whaleman. And so when you're, by the time you're 10 years old, you're spending your time on the waterfront, you're, you know, hearing the stories of ships, you know, it's just a part of your culture. By the time he's, you know, out there when this event happens in, in November of 1820, he's been on a whale ship for a year. He, you know, he, he's, he, he, he knows what's going on. These, these kids grew up. They, they, you know, they had no childhood in a way. Uh, you know, this is, he's the age of a, a high school freshman. Uh, he, you know, he, he leaves his family and he, he can, you know, he'll, if he's lucky he's back in two years. If it's a usual, it's three years. And he's now a completely different person who's had all these experiences. And can you combine that with what the guys went through in the Essex? And, it, you know, it's just, you know, what the, they went through uh, was clearly very memorable. And you can see, it's clear that that's there in, in Nickerson's account. But on the other side, Nickerson, when he wrote his account, He's in his 70s. He doesn't want to be remembered as a cannibal. And so in his account, he claims they never had to actually eat the human flesh, which is you know, very different from, from clearly what happened. And so you know, that's the fascinating thing about history. You get all of these different versions. And um, you have to weigh the evidence. And, and uh, you know, often it's a question of how close to the event. Often it's a question of what this person wants to convey. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. 
time to play it. A new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Back to the conversation. I was, uh, I was struck by your description of the preparations for this voyage and, and some of the values that still stay with us to this day. There was a value of being thrifty, yeah. um, especially in this part of the country in those days. And at some point, thrift, the, 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 uh, the line between thrift and maybe greed is hard to judge. And in this case, you suggested, I think, in the book that they were a little too thrifty. Yes. Uh, that the owners of the ship were too thrifty compar- uh, preparing for this voyage. This is how they were going to get rich. People were getting rich on this island. Tell us about that. Where did they cut corners? How might have this story evolved differently if they hadn't cut corners? Right. Well, you bring up a very good point, because when I started working on Nantucket history, sort of the received wisdom was that you know Nantucket was an island full of Quaker heroes uh, that were thrifty, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, th- and if bad things happened in the whaling industry, they had come from New Bedford. They hadn't come from <laughs> Nantucket. And, um, you know, that's pretty much the way it was. And then, uh, but, I, you know, I'm a child of the 60s, so, I, 60s, so I'm a little bit iconoclastic and suspicious. And, and in researching a way offshore and, and more deeply uh, uh, in the heart of the sea, became clear to me that, that uh, Nantucketers invented the whole approach of that uh, New Bedford became uh, uh, known for that yes they were very th- they were Quakers they were very thrifty but you know they were pacifists when it came to the human race very different attitude when it came to whales and uh, when it came to managing personnel the reason why they made so much money was they cut costs to to the absolute bone and uh, one of the things that Nickerson makes very clear in his account is that there wasn't enough enough provisions on the ship when she left and that the officers were uh, really stinting the men in an excessive way and so that there was actually a a rebellion uh, just before the Essex went around the horn because they weren't getting enough food and this was absolutely typical of a Nantucket whale ship. Give us a sense. I'm almost thinking of uh, remembering Johnny Carson. They were so thrifty. And then, but, but, but really, like, what was a typical meal on that ship, on the Essex, and what should have been a yeah. typical meal? Well, you know, Nickerson goes into pretty, much, pretty good detail about this, where, you know, he, he says they had the kid, uh, where they'd all, if you were a whaleman, if you were an officer, it was very different. You sat at a table and you had had plates and, and all of that, but the, they, they would sit, the, the, the men would sit on the, the deck, the, and uh, there would be a piece of, of boil, of beef, of that, with salted beef, or pork, to, you know, take your pick, you know, so salty that if you put salt water on it, it actually reduced the salt content. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a preservative. And so that was basically their meal plus some hardtack, which was bread the consistency of a brick, and you know a few other things with peas and, and, and things. But it was it was the problem was it just wasn't enough, and so this was um, you know so it was it was just very you know it was not fun. And what was Nickerson shows you is that as kids they had idealized romanticized Nantucket whalemen. 
the media, they get on the ship, and that first day, uh, Owen Chase uh, uh, berates uh, Nickerson for, for not sweeping up properly and, and knocks him, hits him really hard, and swears at him in, a, in language he had never heard before. And he, he comments on the transformation that this gentleman he knew on Nantucket was completely different uh, at sea. And you know, that doctor, you know, Heckle and uh, Hyde kind of, th Jekyll and Hyde uh, transformation was very typical. And so that, you know, often a Nantucket uh, whaleman on, that you knew on Nantucket was a very different person on the other side of the horn. There was a, a phrase that you know, they would leave their conscience on the horn and pick it up on their way back. But. What can we learn today from the way, forget now the Jekyll and Hyde, from the way this community was organized from the very beginning through the days of whaling, are there things that we've lost today that we should go back to? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a huge danger uh, in nostalgic history. Uh, you know, I, 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 there are examples, but it was, it's, you know, history, it's so, it was such a different time. Uh, people had a completely different mindset, uh, whether it was spirituality, uh, attitudes towards, towards Native Americans, African Americans, women, you know, it was, you know, we think of Nantucket as a uh, sort of a, a, you know, where the, being kind of a utopia when it came to um, uh, male-female relations. And to a certain extent, that's true in that, you know, Quakerism believed in the spiritual equality of the sexes, which, you know, was unusual. And, uh, and because the men were away for such a long time, and the women in many cases kept the communities going, it was obvious to all that, um, you know, that everyone on this island was completely capable, a capable person, which was not always the case in other communities. And yet, you know, it's there, there in many ways, Nantucket was typical uh, in that, um, uh, you know, we, we, there were Quaker abolitionists, but when it came to the treatment of African Americans on whale ships, you know, there, there was not an enlightened group. And uh, you know, it's it's that's what I find fascinating. Is I, I have a hard time taking take with takeaways from that. But I will say one thing. You know, one of the things we struggle with, uh, all of us, is is wrestling with balancing work and family. I mean, it's the the toughest thing. You know, if if you've got kids or have had kids and now have grandchildren or whatever, how you know how do you how do you pay for it? and raise the kids in a way that, you know, you're a part of it. I mean, it's, 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 it's to us the ultimate challenge. It was that to them as well. I mean, think of it. The men, in many cases, were away for three years at a time, back home for three months, and off again. And, and they created a society that made it work. And uh, uh, women had a, a, a much stronger role in the society. Children had a great deal of independence. Education was not a priority. The Quakers, I mean, there were no, uh, uh, in the Massachusetts, it was a state law that you had to have public schools. Nantucketers got a, refused to do it for, until they were finally ordered to do it uh, much later than any other state. And speaking of that, I mean, I learned from your, your writing that Nantucket almost considered itself a separate nation in some ways, yes, right? Absolutely, nation of Nantucket. Um, 
Ralph Waldo Emerson said, and, and what I think he was referring to there was, you know, Nantucket, when the revolution hit, Nantucketers had no interest in, in the revolution because all their whale oil went to London. And, uh, and we got through the revolution, whaling started up again, but then came this darn war of 1812. And being an island, it's really hard because you're at the mercy of both sides. And, uh, but what the Nantucketers did, they had the audacity to sign their own private peace agreement uh, with, with uh, the British. And that which was viewed dimly uh, by <laughs> others uh, in America. But you know, that's kind of Nantucketers, hey, Islanders, there you see it today. I mean, there's something about an island. You've got a moat of 30 miles around you. Uh, you do it your own way. You wouldn't come out here if you wanted to have a mall at your feet and, and you know, do that kind of thing. There's something going on, the fact that you're out here, and it intensifies those internal reactions when it comes to people. And what was interesting in, in uh, researching a way offshore is that uh, people were lamenting the change on Nantucket uh, since 1660. Um, uh, it's, been constantly changing. Well, what was the gripe in 1660? Well, if you're a Native American, uh, you had issues. And I mean, it was a fascinating community uh, before the first English arrived. The dynamic created by the Pilgrims and other English settlers had forced the large groups of Native Americans into the islands, Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. The English got to Martha's Vineyard first, leaving Nantucket, that one uh, native island. And then you get, and, and then the first settlers arrive and everything starts changing. And everything has always been changing. And you know, for me, that's the metaphor of America. I mean, that's what's going on here. You know, we, we, we think of our country beginning in a revolution. Every year is a revolution as, as, as the meaning of Everyone created equal changes. And you know, Nantucket has been a version of that. And, and uh, so that's why, you know, for me, my introduction to Nantucket felt like a real uh, master's course in America because it was what was going on in America but intensified. And so you became a historian in Nantucket and then, and then you moved on broader. And some of your most highly acclaimed work is the May Mayflower, Bunker Hill, and I remember sitting with you last year and telling me about Bunker Hill, and again, a 14-year-old who shaped history. Tell us about the 14-year-old who shaped history. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, there is something about 14-year-olds. I think, I mean, for me, those were some of the best, worst memories of my life. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but yeah, no, uh, well, what I loved about uh, working on uh, Bunker Hill uh, was the focus was on an island community, an island community called Boston. Uh, Boston was a 1.1 square mile island of 15,000 people connected by this little spit to what's now Rox to Roxbury. And, uh, and watching that dynamic work as it's hit by a revolution was fascinating. And there was this 14-year-old boy uh, named Benjamin Russell who was going to one of the, what they were called, writing schools. And he was not on a track to go to Harvard. This was a, a, an education that would prepare you for, for, for life. But they were you know, there at this school when uh, Lexington and Concord happened. And, and so uh, he, is, he is a character in uh, Bunker Hill. You know, they, go, they report to school on the morning of you know, of April 
1775 when, and get the news that, of, of Lexington. And the, the, uh, their headmaster looks out and he, he, he loved to speak in rhyme. And he said, uh, boys, the war's begun and you may run. <laughs> School's dismissed. And so they ran out and there were the British soldiers on their way to support the earlier group of soldiers that had gone out that night. And they followed them uh, off Boston, across the bridge uh, into Cambridge, played on the Cambridge Common as Concord was happening, as the soldiers arrived that night, fighting their way house by house back to Boston. And they're there and they go, whoa, <laughs> you know, look what's happening. And they say, okay, we better go home. You know, the, our parents might be worried about it. They can't go home. It's sealed off. Gates, the, the general has, has, you know, put, said, you know, no, no one's coming in, no one's going out. They were uh, stuck out there for, uh, this was in April, for May and June. Uh, by this time, they have uh, been employed as clerks with the, what be, will become the Continental Army, providing food to the soldiers. And on a hill, they watched the Battle of Bunker Hill. And you know, this is a 14-year-old kid. And so um, eventually, his father is able to get a pass out, finds him uh, that summer and uh, greets him by hitting him, slapping him on the head. And he is late, later apprenticed to, uh, to a newspaper and um, uh, it would eventually become a, 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 one of the great journalists in Boston. But, uh, you know, it's that, those are the kinds of ways into history that make it interesting for me. And, and that, his story, I never read about him growing up. How did you, how did you discover him? Well, you know, it's, it, People often say, you know, where, you know, where'd you find that? It's, you know, it's often there. Um, uh, the, the real, for writing a book like uh, Bunker Hill or Mayflower, the real challenge was, yes, you have to do a lot of research, a lot of research. But then the real challenge is then figuring out what do I focus on? Uh, you could tell it so many different ways through so many different perspectives. And for me, that's the, fascinating part is looking at it, okay, now what, who do I want to focus on? Uh, how will they interact with the other people? How, because for me, I, I'm writing these books not because I know everything about them, because I want to know as much as I can about them. And so for me, it's, each book is a process of discovery. And I'm always fascinated when the story goes in a direction I had no idea it went. And someone like Benjamin Russell uh, did that for me. And, and provided a perspective that just gave it an immediacy. Uh, you know, I'm a journalist by training, not a historian. Uh, I was an English major. And in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm I, and journalist tries to create a sense of life as lived today. And, you know, what is it like? What is going on? Why are people doing things? And that's the, the perspective I bring to the past. I'm really trying to figure out what it was like when all of this stuff was happening. And it's often very different from today, but it's also often there's many similarities. So I'm, I'm sure some people uh, have, their, have their own perspectives and, and want to know some things that we haven't addressed yet. So if, if there are any questions in the audience, uh, what have we not covered that you, uh, that you are really curious about? Yes. yes. I'd like to know where that manuscript came from, the journal, in 1980. Who sent it here? Okay. 
this is, this is you know what happened to to where you know where did Nick where did, you know it's kind of like the message in a bottle in a way and um, well apparently um, the writer Leon Lewis uh, lived in at towards the end of his life in Penyan New York and it's, he died never for reasons we're not sure of never uh, never published never used the manuscript the manuscript ended up in an attic. And someone else finally went through the, the material. Initially, the Essex you know, meant nothing to someone in Penyan, New York. Eventually, though, two and two was, were put together, and uh, it, it made its way uh, to Nantucket. And so uh, you know, it, was, it made big news in 1980 when it came. There was even a, an article in Time Magazine about um, the arrival of this manuscript. And the Historical Association at that time published an account edited by Edward Stackpole with the help of others. And uh, so for me, but there hadn't been a book about the Essex uh, written with that as available. And so for me, it was just, that is the way in. And what's great about it is, I mean, he even did sketches. And, and, and by the way, there is a wonderful new exhibit here at the Nantucket Historical Association uh, about the story of the Essex. And you've got to go to it if you haven't been there already and return to it. Because it, for me, uh, going up to uh, seeing that exhibit, uh, it was like such, I was getting, you know, it was all of the stuff that was such a part of my life 15 years ago. And, uh, and, and to see it all assembled with such care and to put in such context of, of not only Nantucket's history, but America's history was really amazing. And, um, and for, yeah, Nickerson, Nickerson was the guy that made it happen. Yes? Uh, talk about the, the movie, yes. Um, hey, and if you go up to the exhibit, uh, you can see uh, uh, something uh, that, that Owen Chase and Captain Pollard wore in the movie, as well as the eye of the whale. Very big eye that was used. Well, the, yeah, the movie um, is coming out in December, uh, directed by Ron Howard, uh, starring Chris Hemsworth, uh, Thor, sexiest man alive, depending <laughs> on your point of view. And, um, and starring, and what character is he playing? Pollard? Or? He is playing Owen Chase. Owen Chase, okay. Owen Chase. Uh, and um, uh, it's, it's, it's a... Uh, it's a story, it's, you know, this was a movie I never thought was going to be made. Um, it was optioned soon after the book came out. It, uh, all sorts of various directors and, and such sort of looked at the project. And, and what you have to realize is most things that are optioned never become a movie. And, and, and by, you know, when it's coming on 14 years after the fact, I had pretty much <laughs> given up hope. Uh, but Chris Hemsworth, uh, apparently got a copy of the script and uh, was interested in attaching himself to it. And uh, That's a very Hollywood term, right? It is. <laughs> I'm, that's about as close as I get to the terminology. <laughs> but, um, so he was interested in doing this and he was working on a movie uh, with Ron Howard called Rush about um, Grand Prix uh, car racing. It's a fantastic movie. And he is the star of that movie. It's also based on, on 
a his actual event, a, a rivalry between uh, James Hunt, a, a swashbuckling British driver, and Niki Lada, an Austrian driver. And um, anyways, and so at some point, he mentioned the fact that he, uh, this, this script to Ron Howard, and uh, Ron Howard was interested and um, became more interested, and, and I ended up speaking with him, I think it was the winter of 2013, and he had not yet committed to it, but was, was very interested, and, um, and he was asking very good questions. I mean, it was immediately, I was like, wow, he's really zeroing in on things that I would hope a director would. You gotta give me an example, what question? Give well, me a you know, question he, that stuck. Well, you know, he, he was asking things like, well, he had read, he had read my book, which was great. You know, I was, <laughs> I was really, and you know, and asking questions about that versus, he also wanted to visually, uh, he was interested in its relation to, the, to how it inspired Moby Dick, which is great. As my father, the English professor said, uh, Melville borrowed shamelessly from the Essex disaster. It's about time the Essex disaster borrowed shamelessly from Melville. <laughs> and Howard was really interested in that, and which was very provocative to me. You know, it just was really neat, because you know, it's coming from a place that's very different from a writer's point of view, but from a visual filmmaker's point of view. And so he was asking specific questions about that. And, um, and so, you know, that was really, really great. And so we, um, it was approaching, I don't think it had been green-lighted, that's another terminology yet. Uh, not even close, I don't think, but he, he wanted to go to Mystic Seaport to actually see the one remaining wooden whale ship, the Charles W. Morgan, which was then in dry dock. It was about to be launched, uh, but uh, so, had, I had lunch with Ron Howard and Peter Morgan, who is the script writer who worked on the rewrite, in the captain's cabin of the Charles W. Morgan. How cool is that, huh? And, um, and oh my gosh, it was just one of those things where you're, you're within a, a historic whale ship talking about these issues, talking about motivations, you know, what, what was Pollard thinking, what, you know, all of these things. And so it was a, a fascinating, fascinating journey. At, at that specific lunch, how was the salted meat? Uh, Just out of curiosity. Yes, the hardtack was a little, <laughs> little moist for my. Uh, no, we, they, luckily they, they, That's really they provided. By the way, I just want to just want, and then I want to turn it back to the audience because we, st we still have about ten minutes or so. But uh, as the writer of this book, what is it that you're dying to see them illustrate in a certain way? Like I can't wait to see how Ron, what Ron Howard does with this scene. Because when I go watch that movie, I want to know what you're hoping for. Well, you know, for me, it's just such a different process. It's, you know, and having, because Melissa, my wife and I went to the, um, spent a day on the, uh, during the filming. And so you begin to realize, you know, there's hundreds of people around. There's, they're, they're building sets. It's, you know, it's just an amazing, amazingly complicated process. And, um, and you know, for me, the, I just, I want a movie that is exciting and meaningful. You know what I mean? I mean that, you know, that is a human story. And, you know, is, is not a, you know, uh, a spe spectacular driven story, but something that, you know, 
has, gets the human heart involved. And and I you know and I'm you know and I, I that's that's the kind of thing that uh, and also the the element of being at sea. It would be great to get a, a sense of what that you know create that and uh, and the enormity of the whale. All of those things. So. Um, those are the kinds of things that would be, I think, very exciting to see made. Because, you know, one of the good things is that by delaying, if, thank goodness this movie wasn't made in 2000, because special effects are in a whole different <laughs> realm now. You know, that would have been a, a plaster of Paris whale, you know, <laughs> uh, get it, you know, maybe latex, but, you know, it just, what they've created now, if you've seen the trailer um, for In the Heart of the Sea, really looks pretty spectacular. Other yes? So I wonder what you think are the critical sort of threads, historical threads from all these things that inform our current cultural issues. Yeah. Well, you know, there's so many threads. And that's what uh, was kind of the juice of A Way Offshore, my first book. And, and then was brought to a boil, <laughs> keeping those metaphors mixed up, uh, with In the Heart of the Sea, was that there's, there, you know, for one, one, one of the, when I was working on In the Heart of the Sea, the, the beginning of that, the, uh, that book sort of came to me with an image, uh, the image that you're presented with in the preface of the uh, Pollard's whaleboat after three months, you know, in this, horrible journey, you know, fat is seen by a Nantucket whale ship just floating uh, near the, the uh, coast of, of Chile. And, and they, these guys sail up to it and look down. And that image was how the book began for me. And for me, the image was, it's like, you know, if you're into science fiction, it was like having a, a space capsule from, you know, a, a, that was out there for hundreds of years come up and there you see someone who's been frozen, you know, that kind of thing. It, for me, it just was, seemed like such a modern story where they had gone to places no one had ever gone before. Geography, you know, in terms of geography, they were going to the offshore ground, newly discovered. Whale ships just never had gone there just a few months before. And then they went into this moral terrain, you know, where you're, you know, they, they, they decided not to go to the islands Pacific because of, for fear of cannibals. And they enact that upon themselves. And the men in that whale boat have lived through that, have, have experienced all that. You know, they've just, they've, they're travelers. And for me, the story of the Nantucket whalemen is it's, you know, it's like a space colony out there. Uh, when I was, uh, working on um, uh, Mayflower, I, was, I, I found the Martian Chronicles, a very rich sort of, you know, kind of reference point. Um, you know, I, I'm always doing that. I'm reading novels all the time. You know, I spend all day reading source material, but it's the novels I read at night that, that sort of create the, the, the metaphoric and, and spiritual um, element that I, is, I'm trying to inhabit uh, with, with what really happened. So fiction helps you see reality better. Fiction helps me with a voice. I mean, that's the hardest thing with history is, you know, you can't make it up. You cannot. But you have to, um, 
But you have to have a point of view that uh, is provocative, that is informative, uh, and that hopefully resonates in some personal way. And the hard part is, you know, you, you, you go sift through letters, documents, you know, really boring stuff. And uh, the, 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 the challenge is to, to sort of make that all have some kinetic value on its own, resonate with what it is to be alive. And uh, that's really what I'm trying to, to, to discover. Any other questions? Yes. Do you have a project that you're working on now? Yes, talk about resonating. I am, I am now uh, uh, about to begin the last chapter of uh, the book I'm working on now, which is a, a second book about the American Revolution. And uh, it uh, sort of conti it begins with the uh, huge British invasionary force arriving uh, in, in uh, New York and uh, focuses on George Washington and Benedict Arnold. And um, it's been, oh, it's been, I've really had, this has been one of those where it's, it's been um, a lot of discovery. I mean, this is a revolution I didn't realize we had, you know, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't just Valley Forge and crossing the Delaware. Um, it went on for eight years and a lot of stuff happened that uh, 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 is just amazing. And so uh, it's, that's what I'm working on now. It'll hopefully, it'll, it's due out uh, a year from now, the spring of 2016. I think uh, unless there are any other questions, uh you know, I sort of want to ask like one last question because now you're working on this new project and you, you're, you're so, it seems to me you're, you're somebody, you started as, uh, I, I hear when you moved to the island, you were a freelance sailing reporter, correct? Yes, but I was also a stay-at-home dad. And um, so that was my real job. I did not, uh, I didn't have a consecutive thought until uh, Ethan, who is here today, uh, uh, went to first grade. <laughs> Because, you know, if you're at home with kids, it's hard to... Uh... So, so, the, uh, so, so, so you, I mean, you have traveled a long distance, and, and clearly your sailing experience gave you a feel for this subject. Uh, last question, look at that boat over there, because it's staring us in the face. Wh what do you think when you look at that boat? And especially, does that tie into the bigger question of you said you're always searching for the meaning of life? But is, yeah. there, is there anything, I hate to make it so broad, but little, little question. No, broad's good, broad's good. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you know, you, actually, you're, you're, this, this boat here, uh, I mean, boats for me, uh, personally, uh, it, I grew up in um, maritime capital universe, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and, <laughs> and I uh, learned how to sail on a summer vacation at my grandparents on Cape Cod. And being in a, a beetle cat, we call them rainbows here, changed my life. I, I just, I, I was an incredibly shy kid. I was in this boat and I could go places myself. There was the wind. It just completely clicked. And, um, and but I was in Pittsburgh. And, uh, and so we had sunfish, we, you know, we got through that. But the boat for me, really w transported me, literally. Uh, I met M Melissa as a sailing instructor. Um, it's uh, the sea and boats are, are, are just something, 
for me that, that is, has real personal resonance, but also I, I just, it is the ultimate metaphor. I mean, we are all at sea uh, and at the mercy of the sea, uh, doing our, our, our darndest to, to stay uh, above the level of the sea. And, and, you know, this boat here, my gosh, there is no more beautiful vessel than a whale boat. Um, you know, it's, you know, canoe-like, double-ended. They, you know, this thing was the product of hundreds of years of evolution. Uh, they are fast, they are light. Uh, those, those Essex survivors went more than 3,000 miles in them. I mean, you know, they're just incredible inventions. And, um, you know, I think there's a tendency today, you know, we now, technology is something we, you know, embrace, embrace and, and defines us. But the level that, you know, back then, they were at the, just the same kind of cutting edge, creating these shapes and, and utilitarian things uh, that were amazing. And yet, you know, it was to kill whales. You know, that's not a great thing. And so, I mean, these are, that's what's great about life. It's just, it's this, you know, you, you, there are no easy answers, no easy takeaways. It's, it's all part of, of, of trying to find our way through this endlessly challenging and changing universe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening.